0: Thor, the podcast, the only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers presented by Spitfire Audio.
1: The name's Kenny Holmes and you are, sir, Kraft, Robert Kraft. Brilliant. And checking in also every week, composer Carol.
2: Hi there.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's nice. It's a little changing it up quiet hi there doesn't it's it's not as good of a shirt though as hey guys
3: composer carol who has been crushing it every week with these piano medleys that are
1: insane insane if you're not checking it out out, you're you're, i don't know what you're doing
3: and i think one of the coolest things is that all the composers see them on twitter or instagram and write amazingly thank you you're incredible oh
2: my gosh i'm touched but yeah, thanks. So cool. thanks for sharing. And- You're
1: the favorite of uh, all of our guests here on Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. And what a jam-packed show that we have Man. for you today. We have a double guest show. So excited. We, uh, we've been we been trying do. this out here and there um, this season, and uh, it's really fun. It's, it's double the pleasure, you know? I mean, we're
3: focused today on a conversation, one of my all time favorite composers, Terence Blanchard, who I've just loved, we worked together on a couple, but it's just I've just enjoyed so listening to his music, yeah,
1: fifteen plus films with Spike Lee
3: right spike more, Lee. more than
1: fifteen I don't know the exact number, but he's he's been the the composer of at least fifteen films, but he's played on so many. Um, including the most recent film on Netflix, to 5 Bloods, and also HBO's Perry Mason. Um, but the list goes on and on for the films Terrence has done, Black Klansman, Harriet, 25th Hour, Malcolm X, Red Tails, Clockers, Summer of Sam, Inside Man, so many great ones. Uh, so Terrence Blanchard, Blanchard on the show today. And then also, as we count down... Alex
3: Lacamoire. That's
1: right. This Friday is... Uh, The release of Hamilton, the stage film performance that they're putting on Disney+. And we thought this is a perfect time to chat a little. Hamilton, we have the music director and conductor of Hamilton, Alex Lacamoire, joining the show today. So a lot to get to. But first, as always, we want to take a second to thank our sponsor, Spitfire Audio, maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composers, used by many of the composers that you hear right here on Score the Podcast.
3: Yeah, and Spitfire's released two new editions of their best-selling BBC Symphony Orchestra library, including a Discover edition, which is an entire symphony orchestra at your fin- fingertips for just 49 beans. Oh, wow. It's 49 bucks, and if, if 49 bucks is out of your current budget, you can complete a form on the Spitfire website, And get it for free. Two weeks it takes if you fill out that form.
1: Yeah, we also want to mention Spitfire's new Composer magazine. There's great chats with uh, many great composers and tours inside studios, including the Newton Brothers uh, talking about Dr. Sleep, which I just watched this weekend finally. Long time coming, and God, it's brilliant. Uh, Make sure to watch The Shining first because there's a lot of Easter eggs, but the music's terrific. There's a lot of callbacks, and... um, Andy and Taylor just crushed it on the music with uh, Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep there.
3: Most importantly to our listeners, we have such a deal for you. 20% off your first purchase at Spitfire. It's good for over 50 different Spitfire libraries. You can use the promo code SCORE2020. It's a limited time offer, so you have to use that promo code SCORE2020 to elevate your music stick around after the show today we're going to play a cue created using the bernard herman composer toolkit
1: very nice very nice so as i mentioned i watched dr sleep this weekend uh it came out on hbo max didn't even know it was coming out but mike flanagan tweeted it and i was like that's what i'm doing tonight and it's it's rad i texted uh andy grush one half of the newton brothers immediately after and said dude I don't know what took me so long to see this film and uh, hear what you guys did, but it's fantastic. And I also finally watched Ford vs. Ferrari, which is also on HBO Max. And Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders loved the music throughout. The performances were great. That's just such a great movie all around, and uh, it took way too long to see these movies. So if you haven't watched those yet, those are my recommendations of the week. And uh, I also went back and watched Old School after... interviewing teddy shapiro and it still holds up how nice it's a nice that's little saturday went to bed bath and beyond home depot i don't know i don't know if we will have enough time you know
3: you're going out which is really nice i um no no that's that's a line from
1: the movie oh actually
0: pretty nice little saturday we're uh, we're gonna go to home depot yeah buy some wallpaper maybe get some flooring stuff like that maybe bed bath and beyond i don't know i don't know if we'll have enough time <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's funny Well, we're staying in and we're certainly hoping our entire audience is having a wonderful opportunity to stay home and stay safe out there. And listen, you know what you can do while you're on lockdown? You can listen to seasons
1: one and two. Of score the podcast That's right Think of the possibilities Well I think we should get to it We have a lot of uh, stuff to talk about here Absolutely um, Let's start with our first guest I be in the room where it happens The room where it happens. I... Joining us now We're really, really excited Because it's a big week And actually two years ago to this week I saw Hamilton in Chicago And uh, Disney Plus July 3rd Hamilton is coming out it's a stage film version. Super exciting to have Alex Lacamoire joining us on the show. <laughs> Lacamoire. And Alex, just so everybody's clear, I don't know how to say it without the O, but you're an igget at this point. <laughs> I think my
2: wife says that I'm, I have a get. A, a G-E-T. get, okay. He's searching
1: for the Oscar, but he's an Emmy, <laughs> Grammy and Tony winning composer, music director, conductor. He does it all. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's an exciting week for you guys. Tell, uh, tell us how you're feeling about this big release. Uh,
2: Super excited. Um, you know, where we are right now in the world, a live theater is not, uh, happening in very many places. And, uh, so, to get the live experience of Hamilton. That's not happening right now, and we're not exactly clear when that will happen. Um, And there was always a plan for us to release this filmed version of our show, and we were hoping to release it next year in 2021. And uh, yeah, uh, as Lynn said, the world turned upside down with the pandemic, and it seemed like a good opportunity for us to bring Hamilton to people if they couldn't come to us. So um, we will be releasing uh, a recording of the show that we made in 2016. And this was... Basically, we recorded a live uh, performance of the show in front of a live audience with um, the cast that we had at the time, just before we started losing a lot of original company members. Like we were about to lose Limanuel manuel and Pippa and Leslie. And then we, um, our producer, Jeffrey Seller, had uh, the brilliant idea to capture this cast on camera. Because um, uh, the story that Jeffrey would tell is that Jeffrey Seller produced Rent back in the day. And he always wished that he had gotten a chance to record that original cast because that original cast of Red is, you know, that's a cast of legends, right? Like those are people that... They say, oh, my God, I saw Rent with the original cast. That's a, that's a very important uh, thing that you saw. So he thought to himself, I would love to capture this original cast of Hamilton because he had a feeling that people were going to be talking about this original cast in, in similar tones. So
3: I would actually like to chime in with two really unimportant pieces of trivia. One, I saw Rent with the original cast.
2: Amazing.
3: I also saw Hamilton. And Alex, I wonder if you were involved in the evening. I went to see it at the public theater. I flew to New York Landed it. It was Hamilton had been open maybe four days and the New York Times review had just run maybe the day before and I was going to Manhattan the next day. Uh And I'd read whoever Charles Brantley in the New York Times. You know, this musical is unbelievable. Get to the public theater. You got to see it. I landed in Manhattan at like 530 in the afternoon and called my friend at Warner Chapel. Oh, yeah. I called him up. I said. Hey, man, I know it's like 5.30 and the show goes on at 7.30 or 8 at the public theater. Is there any possibility you have one theater? And I hear it sold out. And that review yesterday must crush it. He said, hang on, um, do this. Go to the box office and tell them you are Busta Rhymes. <laughs> I said, um, you know, like I'm kind of a 5'10 white dude. I mean, I'm not like a a big Rapper dude, Buster Rhymes. He said, just do it. They'll have a ticket for you. I literally went to the public theater right from JFK with my bag. I remember hiding it in the public theater and went to the guy. And in pure New York fashion, I said, uh, he said, name, please. I said, Buster Rhymes. He didn't blink an eye. He just looked down. He went, uh, Mr. Rhymes, here. Ah. Give me the ticket. Next.
2: Wow. You got them all in check, I think. That's really funny. <laughs> Buster Craft. You know, Buster Rounds went early in the first week, so maybe like he was supposed to have gone that night and changed his mind, because he was there for the, at the public somewhere in the first week.
3: So you know what probably happened? I think I went night four of Hamilton. Yeah, and sat in a, like
2: front row, right? Row center or something like
3: that. Yeah, yeah. and I was just um, front
2: row in the first week of the public.
3: So probably what happened is he couldn't make it that night, and two nights later they got him. A I ticket. think that's probably
2: what happened, homie.
3: And they told
1: him just say you're Robert Craft.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ah, well played.
1: And the guy didn't look up, but the well guy looked prayed. at him and said, no,
2: man. But yeah, I, I might have been conducting it. It was either me or my associate, Kurt Crowley. So
3: I'm excited because the whole concept of Hamilton being filmed as a stage play mm-hmm. and then presented, uh, it's in a unique job for you because usually, I mean, as you know from doing Greatest Showman, I'm sure, or working now on In the Heights where these are the actual movies, mm-hmm. It's a huge role that you play that is generally unacknowledged in film. It's not on Broadway, but of the pre-production that goes into getting vocalists recorded and the post-production that goes into making it look like they're singing. So, when you are doing a live stage play, what was your role in making Spike's version of the stage play prepared for a movie?
2: Yeah. So, uh, great question. Um, in preparation for the filming of the live performance that you see in the Hamilton film. That was just our natural day-to-day course of events being in Broadway, which is you try to keep the show as well-maintained as possible. Meaning, you know, as conductor, I would sometimes take a show off to watch the show from the house. So that I could take notes and give notes about the sound, give notes about uh, cutoffs, give notes about intonation, give notes about phrasing and dynamics, just to try to keep the vocals in shape. I want and, to and interrupt just
3: to say, if I didn't understand this, our listeners may not. What you were saying, because I was saying from the house, so you had a Zoom. You oh, You take the night off from
2: conducting? Yes, get, thank you
3: for clarifying. To get into the audience?
2: Exactly. I so instead it. of like, thank you for, for clarifying that. Yeah, my, I would usually conduct the show. The show would occur eight times a week, and I would conduct most of the shows, and then every once in a while, I would not conduct, and I would have a substitute conductor such that I could actually sit in the audience or by the soundboard and watch the show and take notes and see what the audience was seeing because when you're down there in the pilot seat, you're too close and you're you know you you're listening to everything in headphones. you're not really getting the experience that the audience is getting necessarily. So yeah, it, it's about trying to just um. Uh, as I mentioned, trying to, trying to keep the show sounding the way, as best you think it could sound. Sure. So leading up to the recording, the filming of the the show, it was just trying to keep the show, as I mentioned, robust and, and having a sound clean. And then once it was filmed, uh, it was about the post-production. It was about lis- listening to the mix and uh, having a great team of people to adjust those things and listening to it in a soundstage, listening to it uh, with Tony Vellante, our amazing mixer. We had the help of Tim Latham, who mixed our cast album. We had the help of Derek Lee, who engineered our cast album. Uh, You know, we we had a lot of folks there um, just just working to make the little micro adjustments that are going to be very hard for people outside of us to (laughs) really know what went into it. But uh, it's all about trying to deliver uh, a true performance of the show. That is also, by the way, different than the cast album. Because Mm. the cast album is its own experience, right? And that is doing something in the studio where you can really kind of uh, – have fun and and add some delay on something that you might not have and cut a section that you might normally put in the show. But this was actually the live performance. So what you have is what you have to work with.
1: It's almost like this, this concept was predicted for the time. I mean, it's, it's a perfect time for something like this to come out. And you shot this in 2016, which is only a year after Hamilton came out. And this doesn't happen very often with Broadway shows. I'm curious why, why this particular show and was this when you noticed that Hamilton was exploding and you're like, we got to get this captured or what sparked the idea to do this in the first place and hold it till now?
2: Yeah. Well, well um, the first part of your question, as I mentioned earlier um, I think Jeffrey seller was the person that really uh, got that idea in our heads about trying to capture this original cast before uh, they disbanded, and uh, as they were starting to do. And I will say, at that point in time, we knew that the show was being received in, in a very uh, unprecedented way. We knew that the show was making an impact on a lot of people in a way that, that was very uh, uh, exciting to us because. Uh, you know, the show was very visible, you know, like TV shows were were making uh, jokes about it in their, you know, the sitcoms, you know, and the cast album was still very popular. There were a lot of tweets, a lot of posts, a lot of articles, a lot of uh, uh, books and stuff, uh, you know, uh, there, there were uh, we were in the public eye and it just felt like we wanted to put this performance in a time capsule because we knew that we didn't want to release it right away. Mm-hmm. It was always in our minds to wait until the time was right. And I think we had always, you know, mentioned the number five years. Like that always seemed like the right time for us to to, to release it. Um, But, you know, it could have been earlier, could have been later. We were just going to kind of feel it out, knowing that uh, uh, it just felt right to not oversaturate what was happening at the time. Because, as I mentioned, uh, the show is very popular, but we didn't want to have one more, uh, uh, you know, representation of ourselves.
1: Yeah. After watching the trailer, even after seeing the show in person, I'm so excited to experience it in a different way because when you're in a theater, you're in your same seat with your same angle for the whole show. But because you're able to go in there with. I saw an interview with uh, Lin Manuel last week about talking about how it was shot and how some days there were audience members in there and then they would clear the audience out and you'd do another run with cranes and close ups. And even though it's still on the stage, it's cinematic. How's it going to feel different to watch? Hamilton this way versus uh, sitting in a seat at a theater.
2: Yeah. yeah. You you explained it perfectly, which is when you're watching a live performance from your seat, you can pick what you want to look at, right? Yes, the lights might be focusing on a particular point on the stage, but you could choose to look left and see what this person is doing and look down into the pit and see what the conductor is doing or whatever. But uh, this is one uh, frame of reference to experience the show. And I, I got to give major credit to Tommy our director, and to Jonah Moore and our editor, because out of these seven cameras of footage that they captured for two runs of the show, plus a whole other day of pickups, as you mentioned, and, and the pickups weren't the whole show. Those, those were just targeted scenes. They had to then put together and assemble a way to view the show that still made story sense. That still felt like it captured the essence of the show and focus on the right uh, plot points at the right time and maybe gives enough of the choreography that we feel like we're getting the experience of the show. So uh, I guess all this to say this is one way of seeing the show, but it's not the only way to experience it. Because what I hope this does is that, you know, people will. See this movie and, and get what they what they uh, would like to get out of it, but it will never, in my mind, replace the experience of being in a theater, watching a live performance happening, seeing other people interpret the piece, hearing the vibration, hearing the music through the air that's vibrating just so for you to be able to feel that bass and that sound, and and see the sweat coming off of somebody off the stage because they're working and performing right in front of your very eyes. That that's a tightrope act in a way. Um, I think that's something that people will miss and we'll come back to.
3: Man, just watching you. Just watching you describe it, I can see the passion that you have for live performance. I also like that you called it a movie. I have one tech question about Hamilton because it's fabulous and this Please. particular uh, iteration of it. And a global question about what you made. The tech question is, you mentioned the cast album. And you don't have to reveal any secrets, but did the singers sing in tune enough for... The recording of their vocals live because, as many people actually suspect but don't know, live singing is rarely completely in tune. In the theater, yeah. you kind of give up a lot of critical nature, uh, you know, listening because you're watching the performance. On a record, mm-hmm. the difference between a great singer and an ungreat singer, particularly in the good old days is you know Ella Fitzgerald sang perfectly in tune oh, sure, and there were sure. no overdubs or punch-ins sure, sure. what we do live. Sure, sure. For Hamilton, Mike, I wonder did you have to do a lot of fixing of vocals, or did, are those good singers that they're live and in tune?
2: They're amazing and they're live and, and they're in tune. I, I mean in this modern age there is now a little bit of an expectation for I I think for vocals to be like a little bit more perfectly quote unquote in tune than I think yep. there was, you know, back, back in the old days. Because Again, like can. if you go back, listen to old records and whatever, like, you know, queen, whatever like Van Halen, you listen to that stuff and like, they're not perfectly in tune. You yep. still love it. It's still great. I think to this day and age, you know, if people would go back, if, you know, if, uh, you know if uh, Led Zeppelin recorded <laughs> physical Graffiti" today in 2020 someone would tune Robert Plant's vocals <laughs> that's just because with that mindset where that happens but I will say this because of the Hamilton film and all the live mics that were on in the theater all the time tuning was nearly impossible for
3: that ah, film. That so what you're going to hear is that they, yep.
2: uh, you will see like how good these performers are and how well in-, in tune to your point they were it's an
3: underappreciated skill my other question the global one Exactly. The, the, is Do you think you've now kind of articulated a new way to do movies, which is you take a great musical. I think actually the answer to the question will be, let's see it July 3rd.
2: <laughs> that's one way. And to if it's to
3: fabulous it. and works and is kind of a great way to see it, I think that'll answer the, my own question. I, I'm just I'm excited by the work that's coming up for you. I, right, I saw right. In the Heights on Broadway. Thank I you. absolutely loved it. As I mentioned, Thank I called Lin-Manuel after it and introduced myself and said, let's try and do something together. And he said, I have some other things in the works. Little <laughs> did I know. Um, <laughs> I saw Dear Evan Hansen.
2: Oh, wonderful. Thank you.
3: So you're now, have you moved from New York City to California? Are you going to be making movies from now on and not working on Broadway and ta-ta the Big <laughs> Apple?
2: Well, I still live in New York and Manhattan. I do love it here. I have toyed around with the idea of doing the bi-coastal thing. Um, cause I, I was born in Los Angeles. So there are times that I travel out there and LA feels like home because of the memories I have of, of being a kid there. Um, and there's definitely something about the energy and the air and, and uh, the sunlight that, that I love about uh, Southern California. That, that's really, that's hard to deny. Um, but I will say this, uh, uh, I have been presented with a lot more TV and film opportunities that I've been uh, uh, going towards and it's been really fun and illuminating and scary and terrifying and extremely difficult at the same time. Um, but it's a muscle that I'm trying to exercise because it's not one that it, it's, I don't have a facility with it yet. Um, that is to say I take on the challenge of trying to score a scene from just a pure creation versus trying to arrange something that is is preexisting. Um, and I, I want to be able to just draw from that a little bit more quickly. So it, it's, you know, it's like any muscle, you have to train it, you have to practice, you have to uh, get it stronger. And uh, I am excited about opportunities to be able to say, Oh yes, I score films and not have it take me, the extremely long time that it takes me, you know, with all the self doubt that I'm riddling myself with all of that. So that will come with time. Hopefully.
1: When you connected with Lynn manuel how early on were you on Hamilton? And I would love to know what you thought of it with your extensive Broadway theater background, a rap about American political history.
2: What were, what were your thoughts on just seeing what he had written? Um So your first question is when did I meet him? It was in 2004, and Hamilton was uh, not uh, even a thought at the moment. Uh, Hamilton wasn't a thought until Lynn manuel went on vacation in 2009, I believe. Um, but uh, in terms of what I thought about Hamilton the first time he presented it to me, I will be honest, I – admired the verbal dexterity of it and I saw that the lyrics were oh my god that's awesome but yes it seemed very outlandish to me there was a part of me that couldn't tell if he was serious about it or if it was supposed to be tongue in cheek Uh, And even if you watch that White House video of us performing it uh, in front of the Obamas, he mentions that he's working on a hip hop musical about Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. And everybody starts laughing. And, uh, you know, it just seems so hard to put together. It didn't seem like something one could do. But I credit Lin-Manuel for just having that vision to be able to draw some connection that no one else was able to do i i honestly can't think of another person that would have been able to do what he did with the facility that he did because and i say this often lin-manuel is one of these people that his dna is comprised of all the things that he grew up with and all the things he grew up with was musical theater of a golden age era hip-hop during the 1990s when it was really like just blossoming and exploding and everything else in between and after and before so all those things come naturally to him. He's not putting it on. He's not baking it. He's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, trying to imitate something. It, that's just is who he is. So his music comes out with a flow and an ease and an organicness that I don't think could have happened prior to the time that he wrote it because – it needed music needed to evolve and the speed at which evolved and hip hop had to happen when it happened for it to infuse the DNA of this kid who grew up in Manhattan to be able to absorb it in the way that allowed him to write what he wrote. So it's all about timing, right?
3: It's just a great insight into the process. I really appreciate hearing you describe the authenticity Mm. and also for all of us perspiring creative humans (laughs) <laughs> to hear somebody have an idea that at first is laughed at, oh man, and ends up changing the world literally, I don't know how many other works of art that we've been near in the last few years have had the impact of Hamilton. I can't really it's think crazy. about it, yeah, know, it's infused the culture at such an enormous level, so Alex, it's just great to hear all this from you uh yeah. you have <laughs> on this podcast there are four of us currently, Kenny, myself composer Carol and you and 3 of us have a deep attachment to the Berkeley College of Music. I love it. So, uh great shout out to Berkeley.
1: Yes, please. They're amazing. Alex just in closing regarding this uh this film coming out July 3rd on Disney Plus. There's a lot of places around the world, people in parts of the country that can't afford to go to see Hamilton. I mean, I think whoever I bought my tickets from paid their mortgage for a couple of months. Oh, and it's it's oh, hard hurts. to get a ticket to get to the show. And this is opening up the door for many people who maybe have never seen a Broadway show, uh, for young people who don't even really understand what the concept is. Is there a hope here that you're opening the door to uh, a new generation of Going to see live production with the release of this because Disney Plus has a lot of young kids tuning in. They have
2: a lot of young kids for sure. Well, um, the first thing I'll say is this: you know, it, it breaks my heart the way people were, you know, hiking up prices, you know, above our top ticket price to make a profit off of something that that really uh, burns me a little bit. And uh, to answer your question directly about uh, what it'll do, you know, only time will tell uh, what people will will receive from the message that is being sent from the show. Um, what I do know is that there is something about, for me, and I'll tell you a story, uh, you know, when I was working on in the Heights with Louis Manuel, for me to see that somebody else was using Spanglish to rap and somebody else was using the medium of musical theater to talk about something that I felt so deep because it was like my story, being a Cuban-American growing up and having Latin parents and where are they from. Like, it meant so much to me to have – my to see myself or to see a part of myself represented in art in that way, in this medium of theater. And I find that a lot of people feel that with Hamilton, whether it's about representation. uh, You know, uh, you see people who go to the actors and like, oh, my God, just to see someone who looks like me up on stage doing what I want to be doing is a source of inspiration in and of itself. And uh, there's a chance that people will be able to see this movie and look at Broadway in a way that inspires them to tell stories and inspires them to perform and be on a stage and, and 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 live out uh, uh, some career dream that way. So, who knows what will happen? But uh, I'm just excited that people will get a chance to experience a, a work of art that we created, and and hopefully that will will bring some joy to people.
1: And hopefully they do this more with uh, with Broadway shows because it's, it's I, I think so. it's a really cool idea, and it it brings it brings it home for people that maybe have too much going on, but they still want to check out uh, the great work. And Hamilton, seriously, if you haven't seen it. On Disney Plus July 3rd, Alex Lacamoire. Thank you for coming on the show and joining us in, forgive my cheesy joke here, but the Zoom where it happened? Hey! Oh, that's <laughs> not cheesy. Much. That's very good. I think we we'll need to. <laughs> oh, go that ahead, may
3: please. may be a musical that we can all work on the Zoom where it happens. And, uh, Alex, I also want to chime in. Great to talk to you, and look forward to many more opportunities to hear your work. And go get that O. Go get
1: that O. Go get that O. Get it. Get, I the, it. O. get, get the, the O. Get the O. Okay, we're done here. This isn't a comedy show. We're going to. There wrap go.
2: Up well done. Well done, Alex.
1: Best of luck with everything, and thank uh, thanks you, for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so yep. much.
1: That was great. I'm definitely tuning in on Friday. To watch Hamilton, it's been like I said, two years since I've seen it. It's like uh, Broadway coming home.
3: I'm excited. It's going to be an awesome event. Friday night on Disney Plus. I don't. I feel like I'm advertising for them. I'm just. Excited to see Hamilton and listen to it again.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: especially with the original cast. I did not see it with the original cast. So to see oh, Lin-Manuel and, and David Diggs and everybody, it's it's going to be awesome.
3: And speaking of geniuses, yeah, we have another one coming on our show tonight.
1: Bringing them through the car wash here, the composer car wash. Coming up after the break, we have Terrence Blanchard. Stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Blockbuster. The winner of Ad Week's Creative Podcast of the Year returns. Film is a hobby, not a career. I know, Dad. James Cameron. James Cameron. A movie for your ears. James Cameron. What me? No, 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 no. This isn't what I envisioned. It's a bad idea, okay? About the world's most ambitious filmmaker. It has to be perfect. Just say, "I'm the king of the world." <laughs> what? Why would I yell that? Blockbuster. Get it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey SCORE fans, it's Kenny. We are stoked to be back for Season 3 and we couldn't have done it without your support. Be sure to connect with us on social media for the latest guest announcements, video clips, industry news, and more. You can find us on all the social platforms. Twitter is at SCORE the Podcast, Instagram at SCORE Movie, and Facebook at SCORE Movie. Or you can just search SCORE, a film, music, documentary Also, please remember to click subscribe on your podcast app. And if you're on Apple podcasts, leave us a short review. It helps more people discover the show. All right, enough business. Let's get back to it.
2: Hello, this is Pinar Toprak. You're listening to score the podcast. Now let's
0: go back to the show.
1: Welcome back to score the podcast presented by Spitfire audio. Super excited for our guest today. He has been alongside Spike Lee on so many great films. He's a six-time Grammy-winning and Oscar-nominated composer, Terrence Blanchard, joining the show today. Terrence, hey,
4: how you doing, man? I'm good. How you guys doing?
1: Doing great. Oh, it's great to be here
3: with Terrence, and also Terrence. I know that a lot of a lot of interviews may have covered this territory, but I, as I was listening to. To a lot of your work, I wondered what the moment was like when you were playing trumpet as a session player on William Lee's score for Do the Right Thing. Was there any molecule in your brain that said, I could do this, I want to do this, I want to be Mm -hmm. the guy writing the score as opposed to playing on it? Or did that thought come later in the process?
4: No, I actually had a thought similar to that while we were in the session because i grew up studying composition and i always wanted to have the ability to write for larger ensembles i just didn't know where how it was going to happen so when i saw spike's father writing for orchestra for the film i you know i literally didn't know that that was a job you know i i always thought that people would just pick records and do needle drops for for movies. I don't know why. I just never paid attention to the credits. And when I saw what he was doing, I immediately became interested in it. Uh, just didn't know how it would ever happen. And just as luck would have it, you know, when we were doing more better blues. Spike heard me playing the piano and then asked to use what I was playing and then asked, you know, write a string arrangement for it. Uh, and that's how it all began.
1: I didn't know that Spike Lee's dad was a composer. Oh yeah. Did you yeah. play with him on uh, previous? Like, how did that connection happen? How did you end up playing on on uh, Spike Lee's films?
4: Well, Spike's dad is a great bass player. You know, he played played with. Uh, I think played. Yeah, he played. Uh, not Billy Joel. Um, oh man, I can't remember. Uh, but anyway, it'll come to me. Uh, but he was a great bass player, and his aunt is, was a great classical pianist as well. So, when Spike was doing some of the earlier films, they hired a contractor with a great jazz musician named Harold Vick. And hmm. Harold had this notion of creating a band of jazz musicians, of the most talented people in the New York area, no matter the age group. So, there's actually a video that was floating around for a minute from just us hanging backstage with all of these great jazz musicians at one of Spike's earlier sessions. So I was just called in to play on one of the sessions. And what was crazy about it was, you know, there were two things that happened simultaneously. Lenny White was doing an album of this vocal group and he wanted Miles Davis to play on the track, but he couldn't get Miles. So he asked me to do it and do it with a mm-hmm. harmon mute, Right. Well, at the same time that that was happening, I was walking in to the session with a Lakers T-shirt on. I had a Lakers T-shirt, Lakers oh, hat. No. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, and they, they had just beaten the Celtics, you know, and, you know. And Spike, and he looked at me, he goes, Lakers fan. I go, yeah, man, proud of it. And then the track got used in the film. Mm-hmm. Right? And then Spike said, man, that's you playing on? I said, yeah. And that's how he remembered me. So when it came time to do More Better Blues, you know, he asked me to coach Denzel Washington, you know, and then one thing just led to another, man. And we've been working together for about 30 years now.
3: Did you um, show Denzel sort of ambusher and and different kinds of physical trips that a trumpet player would would be used to?
4: Well, so I tried. I, I, I tried to at first, but he was in L.A. and I was in New York, so we got Oscar Brashear. I don't know if you knew Oscar mm-hmm. Brashear is a great trumpeter. We got yeah. him to show Denzel how to buzz while he was in L.A. So when he came to New York, you know, initially I tried to make videos for him, but the videos just didn't get it, you know. Yeah. But what we what we figured out was, or what I figured out was, if I would just write out the fingerings on a piece of paper it gave him something tangible. It's like music to him, you yeah. know, It gave him something tangible where he could practice at his own tempo, you know, and then build up his dexterity that way. The, the problem became was that he actually knew the fingerings. So if he got caught up in a take of the scene, you know, your natural inclination is to correct your mistake. Right. And that little bit of hiccup you could see in a, in a take. Right. So what we had to figure out was, listen, man, we clogged up the horn. We allowed him to blow as hard as he could. And we said, don't try to use the fingerings. Just sing with the track and do, do it that way. And that way, man, he just became spot on. He was just nailing it every day.
3: It's so great. It's one of my favorite or most scary moments in any musical film is when you have an actor you know isn't proficient mm-hmm. right. playing and there's right. I, I would squirm and say i don't understand how they could shoot this the guy's hands are on the lower half of the piano and what you're doing right. is the top half but well
1: and chris bowers told us you know technology 's a little better now they just put Mahershala's head on his body for uh Uh, (laughs) for for the, for the heavy playing scenes.
4: Yeah. I don't think that would have worked with me and Denzel. I don't know. know. Terrence, I'm going
3: to (laughs) embarrass you by saying that you were so, uh, after listening to all the scores this weekend, it's clear that your destiny was certainly included film composing in addition to all your incredible jazz work, because, um, as I said, listening to the scores, listening to the orchestral compositions, um, it is so cinematic, it's so natural, and it's also been interesting for me kind of chronologically to see up to Red Tails. Yes. And um, how I hadn't realized, I knew that score But when I listened in headphones a few days ago, I didn't realize there were electronics involved. I didn't realize that there was a synth bass throughout. So that here you are going from being what I guess Spike could have assumed you're an acoustic analog trumpet player. Right. How could he know that you were actually both magnificent orchestral composer, but also had this skill set with electronics that really changed things. Tell me a little bit about what Red Tails was like for you and being at Skywalker. How was that?
4: First of all, it was, it was an amazing honor to just to work with George Lucas, you know, and, and one of the things we were talking about earlier that shocked me was how similar it was working with him as it was working with Spike, you know. Um, very, both very detailed guys, but, but still guys who respect other people's craft enough to give you room to create. You know, Uh, when I got it, when I got a chance to get up to Skywalker, I was just amazed at the entire thing. And, you know, uh, it's, it's an overwhelming place to be. Uh, But the cool thing about George is that, you know, he, and I don't mean this, I mean, this in the best way. He's kind of like an ordinary dude when you're hanging around him that it kind of it kind of disarms all of that other stuff. You know, next thing you know, we're we're just concerned about the project and we're we're talking about that. Uh, But it was a great experience working with him, you know. But like I was telling you earlier, I I kept looking for direction from him and he said, man, just make it big. Just make it big, you know. And when he said that, I said, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna use everything at my disposal. And what a lot of people don't really know about me is that I grew up listening to all different types of music. You know, I was in the Return of Pharaoh, Mandrill, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, you know, uh, Headhunters, uh, the, uh, Purple Haze was one of my favorite things to listen to. Uh, I listened to a lot of different things and I still do to this day. So when I got a chance to bring a lot of those elements to bear, man, I just had a lot of fun doing it. And I'm still doing it to this day.
3: And one of the things that was nice that you said about George and Spike, I, I read that that Spike doesn't give you a lot of, you know, do this, do that.
4: No, no, not at all. What gonna, a great yeah.
3: compliment! What a great compliment to you.
4: Yeah, but you know the thing about it though, Robert, what it what it does, man, it makes you it makes you work hard. You know, because mm. when when a, you know when a, when a guy, when any person that you work with gives you that amount of room and has that amount of trust, in you, at least for me, I'm the type of person where I'm not going to betray that trust in any way. I'm going to make sure that that person feels comfortable that I have it handled on my end. You know what I mean? So I'm constantly checking twice, dotting my I's, crossing my T's twice, man, and going through things uh, to make sure that things work. When it's time to score, actually, man, I get to the session two hours beforehand, you know, just to make sure everything's working and I'm, I'm like a I'm like a nervous wreck for about an hour and a half. And then that last 30 minutes, I just kind of just relax and have fun and just wait for everybody to show up and then get, get to work.
3: Do you have a little team? I just wondered if, you know, Spike has a little crew that's kind of around him a lot, Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, usually editor. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Music editor, I don't know if he has.
4: Yeah, Marvin,
3: uh, Marvin yeah. Morris. Because mm-hmm. it used to be Alex Steiermark on some yes. of the early stuff. that was, that was early but, um, stuff, yeah. I just wonder, do you, when you say you get there two hours early, are you pretty consistent with, like, an engineer or an orchestrator or a crew around you, or is it different per?
4: No, track? no, 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 no. Well, it's it's changed. You know, we were using uh, Frank Wolf for a number of years, and now we're using a young guy named Greg Hayes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we try to stay consistent with a lot of, you know, because the thing, the thing, one of the things with Spike, you know, Spike is very loyal and he's the type of guy, he's a creature of habit, you know, and when we're doing these sessions, we don't want any new wrinkles, you know what I mean? If, if, if we have people that are competent and really great at their job, you know, we're going to make sure that we try to put that team back together as many times as we can.
1: Amen. Can you take us back to just growing up? I know. Did, did you grow up in New Orleans?
4: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's, there's. I mean, talk about a place to grow up for music. Um, it's, it's
4: the place. And I, Kenny, I can't tell you how many times as an adult, you know, you, you know, you reach that point in your life where you start to realize how blessed you are. You know, and I can't tell you how many times. I said to myself that I'm so blessed to be from this town, you know, because growing up just from the sheer notion of what, you know, Rob was talking about, we're trying to forever. I grew up in a town where, you know, I could hear like traditional jazz being played in the clubs in the French quarter. And then I could go home and listen to Miles Davis, Clifford Brown, Thelonious Monk. So immediately I started to understand that there was like a growth. There was a tradition. There wasn't a level that you reach and then you just stop. There, you know, that was, my, that was my first recollection of what it meant to be a musician. Then on top of that, the number of people in this town, because I still live in New Orleans now, the number of people, uh, well, I'm by bi-coast. So I live in both L.A. and here, but I'm here during the pandemic. Um, the number of people who do this because they love it, You know, they've, they've, they've not become big stars, but they're great musicians, very creative, and they love what they do. That's my orientation of what it means to be a musician and an artist. It's not about, it's not about trying to chase down a certain type of career or anything like that. It's really about trying to learn with each project, trying to grow with each project and trying to give back, man, to the community that has given me so much.
1: I love that so much, and it's there's there's only two cities I've ever been to where you can walk outside at any point in the day and hear music, and it's Nashville and New Orleans. And there's yes, i will add will add a I'll there's, add a yeah.
3: third to that, which is Havana.
1: Oh, okay. Woo!
3: Havana. <laughs> I mean, you you can be walking on any street in Havana, and you hear a bass. You know, you think, wait a minute, there's somebody's playing a record that's just a bass solo, and you walk around the corner, and there's a dude yep. on the street just
4: <laughs> right. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, let me just tell you this story real quick. So you talk about Havana, right? So I went there with my band, the E-Collective. We did a tour there, and it was an amazing tour. When we get to Havana, they took me to a high school where these 15-year-old kids, they had an all-girls jazz band that was amazing. Then they had this other band come up, and the kid was 14 years old playing the alto saxophone like, like Cannonball Athlete. And when I went over to shake his hand, I was like, man, he didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Spanish. And I I just said, hey, man, you are amazing. And when I was walking back to my seat, I heard the kids giggle and laugh. And I was looking at my road manager and I said, what happened? He said, man, when you shook his hand, the kid went like, what did I do? You know what I mean? Because that's just what they do every day. We go to Santiago and and they take me to a jam session. right? And a guy got up on stage with an oboe at a jam session and I'm sitting there going, man this dude is really brave. Okay, let's let, you know, let's just let's just see what's about to happen with this. And when this guy started to play, it was incredible. So the level of musicianship down there is is it's like it's like here. It's like just like what Rob said, man, you know, it's it was that was an incredible experience. We
3: could do have. a we could do a whole show on two aspects of this. The first is exactly what you said, which is you sit down at a piano. You know, I would play the piano in some place. I have friends that are musicians there. And they then as we're getting ready to record, I did some recording in Havana. And then the piano player would come and sit down. He'd play exactly what I played.
4: Yes, yes.
3: And then he'd play yes. Beethoven just yes. for laughs to say, you know, I'm also classical. And then he'd yep. play some ferocious montuna that, yes and exactly. this is the complete <laughs> musician exactly. these guys were complete <laughs> players the other thing yeah. that's interesting and again this is another podcast is that new orleans and havana oh, have, yeah. a rela- have a relationship yeah and one could even say and i hesitate but the clave <coughs> mm, 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 which is a very yoruba mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm cuban thing yep. is also in rock and roll and yep. is in came up the mississippi with hey yes. bo yeah. and so yeah. that's interesting that i didn't realize you'd been to havana and i love that and we're gonna everybody's gonna say hey man let's talk about terrence and we will but i can say <laughs> to all our listeners that's a whole nother show get to cuba <laughs> Get it the Cuba says,
1: well, the podcast, the an in edition, coming soon. But I also
3: love that you love New Orleans, man. That's and, so and, and
4: let me just tell you this too: if you say this is one of the things our Blakey taught me about the difference between Latin music and jazz, he said they're the same, just on the other side of the beat. He said if you're talking about if you're talking about Latin music, you go that that thing, that thing, that thing, that thing, right? And in jazz, just that that thing, that that thing, that that thing, right? I'm simplifying both of them, obviously, but essentially. That's one of the things that's like really fascinating. And when I was in Havana, I got really upset and I got pissed off because I saw that connection between Havana and New Orleans readily. It was right. In, you could see it in the architecture. You could see it everywhere. Right. And I was upset because this is the place that's 45 minutes from my home by flight. And it took me until I was 50 years old to get there. And when I got there, I saw people that look like me. I saw people that, you know, had the same kind of passion for music. It it was a watershed moment, man. It, it, that trip changed my life.
3: Uh, it's uh, we can go forever. And it's funny you say. About I know. I'm beat.
4: sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, no.
3: I, I love that. And um, I've been many, many times. And I mm-hmm. go through Miami and you go up from Miami airport and down and Thirty-two minutes, and you say, "How is this possible? This is this close."
1: We were getting into his, to Terrence's past, and I want to touch on that before we go anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. you're you're a young man growing up in New Orleans. Are you inspired by the music around you? Are you in a musical family? How
4: did you get the 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 bug? Well, it's funny, you know, when I was a kid, man, I grew up in a household where there was music everywhere. My grandfather played uh, guitar. My mom's sister played piano and taught voice. My dad loved operatic music and was baritone. And my grandmother had a piano when I was a little kid. I was about five years old. I would always sit at the piano when I was over there and i tried try to play Batman. And I would just play the rhythm on the piano and hit any notes. And, man, they were like, if this dude is going to do this, can we please get him some lessons? So at least he can play something that we could actually listen to. So I started taking lessons on the piano when I was five years old. And, my, and we lived in a double, right, double home. And my piano teacher lived on the other side of the house, so I could never miss a lesson, man. It was wow. frustrating when I, when I was a little kid. You know, your Saturdays, man, you don't want to be stuck in a room. Like,
1: Is growing up in New Orleans, is it standard to take music lessons? It seems like it's just part of the culture.
4: Well, for a lot of people here, it is. It's not for everyone, but for a lot of people, a lot of kids here, they see what's happening with the music in the streets, and they all want to be a part of it. So they are, when, The sad part about it is that there were some legislators that actually thought about taking music out of the school system after Hurricane Katrina, you know, and uh, we really had to fight that because we were like, are you crazy? You know, this is one of the things, and especially at that time, because there were a lot of kids who couldn't put into words what they were going through, and we knew music was the thing that was going to help them heal from that situation. So
1: you're you're taking lessons as a young kid, and then at what point are, are you you go through the school system you're playing in the bands and mm-hmm. were you in a band when did it start to become something where you were like this this could be what I'm gonna do as I get older
4: oh uh, well you know around the time I was in junior high school man I started playing keyboard actually in a pop mm. band you know because that's why I started I started playing piano before I started playing trumpet so I was a keyboardist in a pop band we played dances all around town and then I would actually start playing some jazz gigs with some musicians here on my horn. And then I started to realize, yeah, um, I wasn't going to be the stellar football athlete that I thought I was being 5'10", <laughs> you know, and not too muscular. Um, but it started to take on a life of its own. And once I became serious about it, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, doors just start to open, you know, summer camps. My aunt would put me in summer camps. Uh, from the time that I was in fifth grade in elementary school. That's where I met Wynton and Branford. You know, uh, we became, we were friends wow. throughout our entire time growing up. Um, New Orleans is that type of town where all of the musicians here, we, you know, we're kind of like family, you know, uh, because it's a small, it's a small town.
1: Yeah, that's so nice. So you're you're now this incredible, renowned trumpet player, but it all goes back to piano, and I'm wondering... What inspired the transition? At what point? At what oh. point were you piano player turned trumpet player,
4: and why? Man, there was a guy named Alvin Alcorn. Uh, you can't see it in my studio, but I have his picture on my wall uh, to remind me of it. When I was in fourth grade in elementary school, um, he brought uh, a traditional jazz band to my elementary school to, you know, just play for us, right? And I never forget. There was something about him playing the trumpet, the vibrato, it it had a vocal-like quality to me in my mind. That's what I kept thinking about when I was a kid. The funny part about it was, you know, remember I told you I live in the double and uh, we didn't have a piano, so I I would always have to go to my grandmother's house to practice, right? Well, just as I came home to say that I wanted to play the trumpet, my dad had just gotten me a piano to put in the house, you know? (laughs) yeah that was my dad forgot about his religion that day it was <laughs>
3: did you ever have a chance really to go funny, back to mr alcorn and tell him how much influence that day had on him did you ever oh, see him again and
4: tell him i did but you know i didn't get a chance to say i'll tell you what happened like i said new orleans is such a small town man we're coming down on the off ramp on the highway we get to a traffic light and my dad is driving i'm still a young kid i'm in elementary school and I go, Dad, Dad, that's the guy. That's the guy. He's the reason why I want to play the trumpet. And my dad goes, oh, that's Al. And I'm like, you know him? They roll down the window, and he goes, Al. And he goes, hey, Al, how you doing? And they, they're talking real quick. And he goes, hey, Al, my dad, my son wants to play the trumpet. You think you could teach him? And I got really excited, you know, like, oh, man, I'm going to study with this guy. And he goes, no, he's got to learn how to do that for himself. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and I was crushed, man. I was crushed. But when I got older, I said, you know what? That was probably the best thing for me to hear, you know, that mm-hmm. nothing was going to be given to me. If you're going to do this, you got to work for it.
3: That's so interesting. And I it just reminds me, every great musician has something burning inside that says, I, you know, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die trying. It's yeah. we all know that there's certain. Certain people come and go, you know, I'm thinking of doing a couple of things, thinking of doing uh, banking or maybe being an agent or maybe being a musician. I just say, you know what? It just doesn't make any sense if you're going to be a musician. <laughs>
4: There's no question. There's no questioning it, right?
3: Yeah. I, I want to get back to Klansman uh, just before we take a minute here, because I'm really interested in the in your use of the guitar and it and how you. I know you came to that. It's funny. I've been thinking a lot about, strangely enough, Ernie Isley. Oh, the long yeah. story, and yeah. uh, and Jimi Hendrix and the whole, mm-hmm. m- you know, Hendrix was in the Isley band. But I know that on Clansman there was a moment there where you maybe thought about Hendrix or using a guitar. It's just, it's, first of all, it's an incredibly soulful melody. And it's interesting you chose to articulate it on guitar. What was there? a Those kind of moments with composers, it's very hard to know. But, you know, do you wake up in the middle of the night and go, I got it. It's not no. trumpet. It's guitar.
4: Yeah. Well, for me, it's when I saw the first clip with John uh, David with, with that afro and that, that leather jacket and those bell-bottom pants. Man, I went, I went right back to my childhood in the 70s when the Black Panther movement was really strong. You know, there was a lot of things going on, there was a, a few dudes in my neighborhood, man, who had just come back from the war, and some of those guys were shell-shocked <clears throat> and was suffering with mental illness. We didn't know that at the time. We just thought that they were crazy. But, you know, we I mean, the older I became, I started to realize what was going on with them. And there's just something that struck me about Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem, and I kept saying to myself, his interpretation of it to me was one of the most patriotic things that I've heard. You know, a lot of people will disagree with that. But for me, he was being honest, you know, about what he was feeling when he played it. And it to me, it was kind of similar to Colin Kaepernick kneeling, you know, in that, you know, the, 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 the thing says, you know, all men are created equal. You know, but that's not... There should be an addendum, but all men aren't treated equal, you know. And when he played that and I heard it, I said, you know what? That's got to be the sound for this movie where you have this ordinary person who did an extraordinary thing. You know, this guy wasn't looking to be an activist, you know. He was just doing his job. And when he stumbled on this, this thing about the Klan, he just went with it. And I got a chance to meet him, and mm. it it was it was an it was an amazing thing meeting him because you know when you meet guys like that that do things like that, you expect them to be seven feet tall and full of muscle and everything. No, he was he was an average guy who, like I said, did an extraordinary thing, which made me question what it is that I, what is it that I'm doing, and what can I do, you know, to uh, help further the cause.
3: I, I liked one of the comments under uh I was watching a scene that I found on YouTube of black Klansmen and one of the comments reminded me of the year that you were either lucky or unlucky to have black Klansmen nominated for an Academy Award because mm-hmm. the comment did not mince words. It said Terrence should have won the Oscar for Black Klansmen, Then it said a word that I won't repeat because we have a family audience sometimes, but it said <laughs> yeah. blank Black Panther.
4: Oh, so, wow. Um,
3: <laughs> and I, I didn't remember that the energy around Black Panther was sort of sweeping up awards, mm-hmm. and there you had just this magnificent score. But I liked reading at one point that you said you had no, you know, you didn't go into any movie, of course, thinking, oh, man, no. This is this is my Oscar bid.
4: No. No, it's I just mean the next score. Yeah, I mean because even with the nomination, even with with the five Bloods, it's, look, I I never it never happened in the past, so I wasn't looking forward to forward to it happening in, at any time soon. So when it did, it was such a shock to the system, and it was a great time. I was just happy to be there, man. And and the, and the thing that I'll say is that, you know, uh with, with Nicholas Bratel and, uh, uh, oh, my man, I'm losing my brain now. Uh, we had a great time throughout the entire Oscar run. We became great friends, man, and we were all rooting for each other, you know? Who else uh, was up there?
3: It was Ludwig. Ludwig, Nicholas Ludwig, and Lidl- you. And,
4: uh, and uh, oh, man, come on, you know who I'm talking about. He's, was it Desplat? No, he was at, he didn't show up. He was nominated, but he didn't show up. Um. Oh, man, he's going to kill me. He's going to Compose kill
3: Composer Carol has got it on the edge of her
4: yeah, fingertips here Yeah, because he's a great guy. He's funny as hell, too.
3: I wonder. They're all funny. Nick Bertel is funny. Nick yeah. Bertel is... Respect. Big shout out.
1: Let's take a step back on the timeline again now. So you played trumpet on a couple Spike films, and then when did you step into the role, and what was that conversation like? How did you become... The guy to score his his films.
4: Well, we were doing some pre records for Mo' Better Blues," and um, I was at the same time I was working on my first solo project for Columbia Records as an artist, and mm-hmm. and we had taken a break. Right, uh, I was going through an embouchure change, man. I didn't have much endurance at the time, so we took a break, and I sat at the piano and I started playing this melody of something that I was working on. And Spike heard it and walked by, and he goes, hey, man, what is that? And I said, "Uh, it's a tune that I'm writing for an album that I'm going to do for Columbia Records. It's called Sing Soweto. It's for all of the kids that were massacred there. And uh, he said, man, I love that melody. He said, you think I can use it? And I said, sure. I didn't think nothing of it. We recorded it just as an acapella trumpet piece at the time. And then uh, it was later on, after he started editing he, he, you know, he didn't. He changed his mind about just having to just be solo trumpet. He asked me, he said, hey, man, you think you can write a string arrangement for it? And uh, I said, sure. And I called my composition teacher up and said, man, I got to write a string arrangement. So what do I do? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no. um, and uh, I wrote the arrangement, brought it in, and I'll never forget it, man. Bill Lee, I gave the music to Bill Lee and Bill Lee goes, hey, man, you wrote it, you conduct it. And, it's, and this is a story I always tell kids, I said, because it brought me back to my high school arts training when I was at the arts high school here. Perfect. I immediately, I had to go back and say, OK, I remember one is here, two is here, three is here, four is here. So at least I had that part done. This hand didn't know what to do, you know, but at least I could keep everybody on beat. And we did the take, And afterwards, Spike came out. And uh, he just said, hey, man, you got a future in this business. And I said, oh, thank you, man. And, and I didn't think nothing of it because I was riding off the high of having 70 musicians play something that I'd written. Right. And it goes to show you how the universe works. So we were at old BMG Studios in New York and I walked up the hallway to go to the, the men's room and there was a mastering room right there across from the men's room. And there was a guy in there mastering the writer's springs. Stravinsky's the writer's Spring. And you talking about, man, like just checking your ego at the door. Like I was on this huge high of like hearing this orchestra. And then I walked down the hall. And when I heard that, I said, oh, my God, I got a lot of work to do. And then Spike called me to do Jungle Fever, you know, after that. And it's just been a wonderful working relationship ever since. But did you at that moment? Were you shocked, though?
3: Yeah, with Jungle Fever, did you have that same moment of how do I write a string arrangement? Did you have that moment of how do I write? Write A film score.
4: Oh, definitely. And and, and, the, and the wild part about it, a lot of people don't know, is that at the time, man, there was a lot of piracy going on in New York. Right. So, um, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I remember coming down uh, Canal Street one day and the feds raided this place that was manufacturing. And it was funny because they, they jumped out of a white panel truck. And I was parked right behind at a, at a at a light. And I thought they were coming for me. You know, it was no, crazy. No, about 15 officers jumped out of this truck and raided this place. Uh, but at the time, everybody was freaked out about films getting released early because, you know, they were being sold on the street like months before they were released. So Spike didn't give me the film for Jungle Fever. He just gave me a sheet that said, this scene is this long. This scene, scene is this long. And I tried to do my best. And at the time, I really didn't I didn't know much about orchestration. Um, so I remember after doing it, it's like, you know, I always tell my students whenever I have a session, for some reason, after every session, there's a moment of clarity that becomes the next session. You know, the thing. To do's oh, and don'ts. that's so nice. Yeah. So you scored
1: your first full length film with no picture. Yes. Yes. That's insane.
4: Well, I didn't think yeah, I mean, you know, now, I mean, looking at it it it, it was it was a challenge, you know. Uh, but that's why when we did Malcolm X, you know, uh I told Spike, I said Spike, you know, I understand what's going on, bro, but look, man, I'm going to keep everything secure. And look, I get it. I understand what he was cuz you know, the one of the places that he was working at when he was doing it, man, I'm telling you, it was crazy back then. You there were like major films being sold on the street prior to release.
3: Well, I think just before we take a little break and come back with Terrence Blanchard, I must share that in that moment of all the films being stolen, I had the experience of actually finishing Avatar. Oh, wow. And and being very concerned the studio was about piracy. Yes. And I went to the premiere and then my family uh, and I, we had a friend who was working in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. He'd started an orphanage and we after the premiere, we flew to visit him and do some work. And we got there and the very first day we're walking in Phnom Penh and this kid comes up to us with a basket full of DVDs. Yeah. He had Avatar for sale.
4: And, and that's, I'd, I'd,
3: uh, I'd been at the premiere maybe 48 hours before, yeah. and uh, it was 75 yeah. cents. <laughs> yeah, and, and I thought, well, here's a $200 million movie that somebody has already figured out a way to steal. Yeah. It
1: didn't affect the box office. It didn't though, affect so the box right. office.
3: That's 75 cents. I <laughs> kept it in my pocket. I brought it right back to Fox
1: <laughs> and threw it in the basket. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, much more to come with Terrence Blanchard. Stick around. We'll be right back.
0: Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast, and The Soundtrack Show is the perfect compliment if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not, music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, this is Nicholas Bertel. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Score the Podcast, presented by Spitfire Audio. We're joined by Oscar-nominated and Grammy-winning composer Terrence Blanchard. Uh, Latest film, The Five Bloods on Netflix, another Spike Lee joint. Terrence, we found out the name and maybe we should come back. Carol researched it. Here are the
3: five contenders for uh, that year, which might have been 2018. Black Panther, Black Klansman, Beale Street, Isle of Dogs... Mary Poppins, Mark Shaman, Shaman. Shaman. and Uh, and you're going, you're going like this, you're going like this, you say he's really funny, and I thought, who, and then, uh, okay, one of the funniest guys ever, but did I have some amazing times with Mark Shaman, amazing. Didn't he win the
4: Golden Globe, too? Oh, you know what, I think he did. I think he did because Ludwig didn't win it. Yeah, I think nah. he did. But you know, we were at the Baftas, man, and you know, in the Baftas they combine the songs with the score. So you know, and we were up against Lady Gaga, you know, and we were said we all we went for the trip, man. We, you know, we knew what was going to happen, and it was so funny, man, because I could see Mark across the across the hall. I mean, uh, you know, in the in the in the concert hall, <laughs> and when our category came up, and they called them as the winner. Mark looked over at me and he goes,
2: loser. <laughs> <laughs>
3: ah, that's
4: funny.
2: He oh is a very God.
3: funny man. <laughs> I've known him a That long seems time. like the
1: thing to. Didn't John Powell tell us that Hans Zimmer did that to him when Social Network won the Oscar? I feel like that the exact same thing he did the L. <laughs> Ah, uh, Terrence, I'm curious how your relationship with uh, Spike Lee has changed over the time you've worked with him. How is it different working with him? Are you guys are you even verbal anymore? Do you need <laughs> to even speak? I mean, when you work with someone that long, it seems like you probably get a vibe of what uh, what they're looking for.
4: Yeah, you know it's 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 been a, it's been an interesting relationship, Kenny, because um, I, I I tend to think it's well. Not that I think I know. It's been a beautiful thing watching both of us grow and Barry, too, who's the editor, you know, um, because I- I've been telling people all along. The wonderful thing about working with Spike is that he really loves making movies, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, it- there's just no way around it. I mean, and he is a historian, you know, he he knows a lot about film and um, I get inspired working with him every time, you know, we were doing the Oscar run for Black Klansman when he told me he was getting ready to start shooting the five bloods. And I'm like, damn, brother, take a break, man. You know, do something. And he got to work, and I'll never forget when he sent me the first cut, my reaction was like, oh my God, you know, this guy's done it again. And then the next thought is like, you know, that's like getting a pass from Michael Jordan on the court. And you're all alone by yourself. You gotta take the shot. You got you have to take the shot and you gotta make the shot. You know what I mean? And that's what I felt like because I watched Del War's performance, Carl Peters, everybody. And the cinematography I thought it was just gorgeous. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, there's no way that I'm gonna allow the music to be the weak link in this chain, because everybody's done such an amazing job.
1: Yeah, and it's it's cool that this film, you know, in a time where the theaters are shut down and everything, something like Netflix, you're probably getting a lot of eyes on this film. Are you noticing that oh, uh, a lot of people are are seeing the film?
4: I'm, I'm, I've had so many friends and colleagues like hit me up on social media, text me on my phone about enjoying the film, and uh, it makes it, it in this weird, crazy moment that we're living in. It, uh, it brings a lot of joy to my heart that we've created something that can take people away from the craziness just for a little bit, you know, and also make people reflect, you know, because a lot of people have been saying that the film is a timely film. And my, my, my answer to that is that it's not a timely film. It's just that these issues that we've been dealing with haven't been really uh, confronted. You know, uh, we could have done this movie last year and people would have said the exact same thing. You know, um, but having said that, I think I feel blessed and I feel honored to have worked on this project and to be working with, with people like Spike and like Delroy and all of those guys who love what they do and really great at it. I just it.
3: thought it was amazing. I wanted to ask a little bit, and Kenny and I were talking about this. Just curious. I know that Spike wanted the Marvin Gaye material. I'm just curious, had he spotted the film with those moments and you had to write around them or was it oh, yeah. kind of done? No, together? no, no. He,
4: no, he already had it in there. You know, one of the things about Spike, man, is that not only is he a film historian, man, he is a serious music lover. You know, he he loves music. You know, and he knows more about it than he ever will, will, uh, admit to. He has great ears. I'll never forget we were doing a session one time and the whole string section is playing. And he goes, and I was getting ready to hit, I was, I was telling the engineer to say, okay, stop, 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 stop. And as I was doing that, Spike goes, you know, uh, hey man, the the violas are out of tune. And I'm like, yeah, the viola. I'm like, say that again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. What did you just say? I'm like, how did, how did you hit it with the violas between the entire section? You heard the violas all the time. That's team? stunning. Yeah. Does he play? Is
3: he a nah. musician at all? Well, his father's a great composer. You got to figure he's got some DNA that that says says music. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's. I told nice. him, man, as a matter of fact, as a matter of
4: fact, at that point, I told him, I said, "Don't ever tell me you don't know anything about music ever again." Ah, perfect. please, please, yeah.
1: How do you characterize the importance of Spike Lee in American history? Just with with the, his filmmaking and the, the subjects he tackled? I'll
4: just, I'll put it to you like this. When we were doing Inside Man, it was right when Hurricane Katrina hit. And I had an apartment in L.A. because I was teaching at USC at the time. And, you know, me and my family, we evacuated with our two, my two youngest kids to L.A. Couldn't find my mom for two weeks. Mm. Found her, brought her to L.A., put her in an apartment across the courtyard from ours. And Spike normally flies me to New York to spot. And uh, he said, listen, man, you don't need to be away from your family right now. He said, you stay with your family. I'm gonna come to you and we're gonna spot in LA. I'm like, okay, good. I said, I appreciate that. He walked into my apartment and he said, I'm gonna do a documentary on those levees and I'm gonna allow those people a chance to say what they have on their minds. And I'm gonna give them a chance to speak. And it was at that moment that I realized how important this guy is, because not only is he a great artist, but he's a great humanitarian, hmm. you know, and in his humanitarian life, he understands that with his platform, he can give voice to the voiceless, you know, and I have never seen anything done on New Orleans as comprehensive as what he had done. When he's broke. Yes, because you got to remember, you know, and it's a racial thing. Unfortunately, we have all of these different pockets of variations of this New Orleans culture. So sometimes there would be a documentary on this part. There'd be a documentary on this part. Spike didn't look at it like that. He included everybody in the in his piece. And when I saw that and I saw what it did to the spirit and the souls of the people who live here and were from here, It was an amazing thing and then it also allowed people around the world to get a glimpse of what was going on here so for me he's a very important figure because he has this fictional world where he creates these movies that help illustrate his humanity but then also in his documentary life he will actually go out and give voice to the voices same thing happened with four little girls you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so I think he's an extremely important person in the in, in It's interesting
3: culture. how all that work, and in any artist's life, but in Spikes, it's going to be cumulative. It brings yeah. us to this moment, and it's, you know, it might have not had an impact that was global at that moment. It was muted. It was seen, and now it, we come to today, where yeah. all of his work, as I'm going through your work and looking at what Spike has done, addition, mm-hmm. also Casey and, mm-hmm. and Harriet, and, and yes. some of these films that come up, um, mm-hmm. you realize the house was being built and it was being built by filmmakers. And though it might not have had the impact at that moment. And it's interesting how the five bloods actually shows up now mm-hmm. and the Marvin Gaye song. You know, when the lyrics come up. On my screen, because I put subtitles on and I read mm-hmm. the lyrics and mm-hmm. I realized what Marvin Gaye was saying.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, yeah. I just things don't always happen in the time they should. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is that's the right film, and the right song. I think we were both interested. Well,
4: Rob, well, I have to tell you, I don't mean to cut you off, but I have to Please. tell you, you just illustrated exactly. I just did an I just did an op-ed for NPR hmm. and you just illustrated exactly what I was was what I was trying to say. And the thing is, you know, the thing that I was saying was that because I was doing an interview about the five bloods and somebody was talking about, uh, you know, what's going on and how many people love the song. And then I thought about it and I related it to social injustice in that, you know, there are well-meaning people all around this planet who love the songs and can really sing the melodies with the same inflection as Marvin Gaye which will make you think they really understand it, but don't really understand what the words are, you know? And sometimes it takes people a while to really grasp what is really happening with the words. And I think this moment in time with George Floyd's death, this is a moment in time where people are waking up to what the words actually are in the song. And I'm just talking about in our culture and this this American culture where we've been, you know, uh, trying to do the best. Well, I won't say all of us, but a lot of us have been trying to do the best that we can, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a beautiful moment to see how out of this tragedy, a lot of people have awakened to what has been going on for decades, you know, and it's been doing my heart, my heart, a, a great, it's, it's, it's been blowing me up, man, watching all of these young people out in the streets, fighting for injustice, you know, fighting for what America has promised all Americans. You know what I mean? It's a beautiful thing to witness. Is that one of the reasons why
1: you chose to do it acapella? First off, I had never even heard that song like that before. Um, I don't know if that had that been out there like that anywhere. But the the fact that you didn't have the music around it to really uh, put the, the, the lyrics on display. No, that
4: was a spike decision. And I think he did it exactly for that reason. You know, uh, I think the backdrop of the war, what we were talking about earlier, these guys fighting for the rights for people they don't know only to go back and not have the same rights as the people they were fighting for. And then the person who was fighting for their rights was killed, you know, but they were still professionals. You know, it's yeah. it's an amazing thing. And I think, you know, by by making it an acapella piece, it gave like you said, it gave you a chance to really focus on. What, it, what what's going on. Because when he says, mother, 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 there's far too many of us dying. You know, brother, 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 there's far too many of us dying. Mother, 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 there's far too many of you crying. It's powerful. You know,
3: Marvin Gaye is really, really laying it down with those lyrics. I mean, it's just quite a remarkable song, more than I ever knew. And it's funny, when you're talking about it, singing, how many people say, oh, honey, I love this song, let's slow dance, not right. realizing it's incredibly political but um you've got so much great stuff coming up i mean perry mason debuted last week yes and uh is now in full swing Mm uh maybe a couple
1: weeks ago i'm into it i'm into i'm into the new it's a great show what i
3: heard in perry mason and i thought i wonder if jerry goldsmith somehow show up ah. in a room near you because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it might be just the solo trumpet feeling and yeah, the dark streets uh-huh. of Chinatown, but uh-huh. there, I mean, it's a nice room to be in, which is the Jerry Goldsmith room, but I thought, ooh, Terrence, either overtly or maybe it's just those pictures, I felt a little Chinatown coming through, well, kind of a trip.
4: Well, you know, the thing is, I, I've loved great scores, man, you know, I, uh, <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's all possible because You know, that's one of the when I did my album. I did an album called Jazz and Film, and we recorded China Time. Oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, it's possible. You know, for me, what I try to do with Perry Mason is to try to create something fresh, but bring in some of the sonic elements of the period. You know, uh, and do something a little different. Are you playing?
1: The, there's a lot of piano and trumpet on display. Is
4: that you playing everything? Me, but I'm playing both. I'm not playing. We, you know, during this COVID 19 period, uh, we had to find guys who could record at home. Sure. So we we had a bunch of guys who recorded drums, bass, and the horns, saxophones, and the strings uh, in the studios and I did everything else including the piano and
1: trumpet. Oh, that's so nice. Well it's definitely a great show and it's you know, anytime you're on an HBO series, they don't miss very yeah. often. Um so I'm excited to see how that unfolds. When I,
4: when I when I saw this show, I was amazed because and I've been telling people I said, this is not your dad's Perry Mason. You know what I mean? Just wait. First episode is just just wait till you see it I it's a great show
3: it also shows growth as a composer because if I'm not mistaken I mean when I first heard the end title I thought you know it's almost like my CD player is skipping or uh, (laughs) you know but I realized it was a sample that was rhythmic and um, plus it just shows all the coolness of electronics plus plus kind of an acoustic band yeah
4: you know that you know that, that 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 first sound.
3: Yeah, what is that? A sample
4: of? It's a it's a it's it's a it's a sample of something uh, that I put it. That's in Omnisphere that I use. Oh wow! But I got the I got the idea because that truck man is so rickety at the beginning of the show. Nice.
3: <laughs> that's so cool. I think Terrence, we just wanted to ask also a little bit about the Charles Blow book that you're. That oh we're yeah. going to be working on. I mean, I, I've been interested in hearing you. I don't know if we even got it on the podcast, but earlier saying that your father listened to opera. You have your second opera coming up for the Metropolitan, correct?
4: Yeah, I'm excited about it. Uh, I, don't, I, I still wonder about how I got here, you know, because my father loved opera, and I always said, you know, he's probably up in heaven looking down at me going, I told you, so you should listen to me <laughs> years did. ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've been blessed, man, because this whole journey started with Opera Theater St. Louis when they asked me to do Champion in 2013. Mm-hmm. That's when it that's when it premiered. And, you know, they said, well, we want you to do another one. And, you know, my wife found the book of Charles Blow's life, uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. And it's been a it's been a beautiful journey, you know, because when we premiered it in St. Louis, those guys did an amazing job. And it's such a different it's such a different experience than writing film because in film, I'm reacting to something that I'm looking at. There's a stimulus on the screen that's, that's you know, inspiring me to write. Here, it's just a libretto in my mind. And it's an amazing thing to sit in a room for, for two or three years and, and put this together and then watch people walk around the stage and singing these lines. It's an incredible experience. I know it's Casey and... Um, and Casey Limits did and, the libretto. Oh, she did. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, it's a, she. She adapted it from Charles Charles Blow's book. And
1: this is scheduled. I know it's kind of up in the air, but what twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three, something. Yeah,
4: twenty one twenty two. I think is the the twenty one twenty two season. So yeah, uh,
3: for all you sports fans out there, we are blessed to have Terrence here. Who it. It's hard, you know, it's like whatever day it is, is he making a record with E-Collective? Is he scoring a major (laughs) release on HBO or in the theaters? Is he writing an opera? Uh, Is he teaching at UCLA? That's a full life.
1: Yeah, you have so many things going on, but you always have time for Spike, has there ever been a point where you had to put something on hold for him? I mean, how do you balance all of these different projects?
4: You know what, Kenny man, it's been it's been amazing in how things work. Um I've been look, knock on wood, dude. I've been very blessed that things have fallen into place, you know, perfectly uh in my career. There were a couple of times where I had to move some concerts around, obviously. Um but it wasn't a wasn't a huge deal because those things were just easily rescheduled. Um, but I've been blessed in that way, you know. And, you know, look, Spike is the dude that got me into this, man. So whenever he calls, I have to make sure that I'm there for him just the way he's been there for me.
3: I love that. I think it's one of the great attributes of having a relationship with a director is that you actually have this yeah. kind of... First of all, you have a nonverbal way of talking to each other and speaking, but um, he knows that he doesn't have to think, wow, i got to find a new composer for this. He's found the composer. Thank
4: you.
1: Before we let you go, I had one question that I have to ask you, Mm -hmm. and you kind of addressed the Spike Lee NBA fan (laughs) fandom when you talked about the Lakers, but have you been to a game with Spike? Have you experienced that?
4: When I lived in New York, man, he turned me into a Knicks fan. And this was back during the glory days with Patrick Ewing, John Starks, and all of those guys. And I and I, I tell his story, and I know he doesn't remember it. Uh, he wasn't even paying attention. But we're sitting on the floor, man, and I had a box of Cracker Jacks, and I just put them down like this. And he jumped up said, take him, Pat, and kicked the Cracker Jacks all over the court, man. And the ref <laughs> came over to me, like, really upset. Hey, 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 hey. And I was getting ready, and I was like, "No, but he's the reason why. I, that's why I got my ticket from." I'm like, "Yeah, all right, man, my bad." Oh, my bad. that's a great, but, that's a great colleague. But, but here's the thing, you know, he knows that we're, I'm a serious NFL fan and the Saints are my team, right? So he came down after Hurricane Katrina when the Saints played that first game after right. the hurricane. He was actually here walking around with a with a New York. Uh, Jets jersey on, no way Yeah, and it, my man. Yeah, and it was funny because I didn't see him, and my phone kept going crazy. Your man's here walking around with a Jets jersey on. I'm like, and I'm texting. I'm, I was texting. I'm like, hey, bro, you can't do that down here, bro. You can't do that down here. No, 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 no. But you know, That's when it great. comes to football, we don't we don't talk football much because he's a New York fan. Yeah. Yeah, well, so, you have we haven't even season. talked basketball that much lately.
3: Hey, listen, so. I used to go to Yankees games and there'd be one guy walking into the bleachers in a Red Sox uniform and the police, the police would actually lift him out and say, come with us, because it was too dangerous by about the fifth inning with enough beer. <laughs> you know, you just <laughs> the fights broke out but man no, just by no you, push just push by away, you saying
4: that yeah 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 yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> just I love just the cracker jacks just I love, love yeah, 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 so yeah. well terrence uh thank you so much for taking the time all the way joining us from new orleans we really appreciate you coming on the show and uh The music of Perry Mason is available now on Water Tower Music and new episodes every Sunday on HBO and also make sure to go watch the Five Bloods on Netflix. uh, that is out now. And so is the score, right? On all music platforms. Yep. The score's out as well. Thank you guys, man.
4: Hey man, it's been great. Hey Robert, it's been great seeing you. It's been too long. Terrence, too long, but we're gonna we're gonna
3: figure that out. We're gonna remedy that. Yeah so thank you so much fantastic
1: and a reminder to our listeners to follow us there's a number of ways Instagram score movie Twitter at score the podcast Facebook score a film music documentary send us your questions to score the mailbox at epicleft.com. we'll try to get those answered on the show Robert take it away hey Terrence just a great pleasure I'm gonna
3: go listen to more Terrence Blanchard after this podcast just because it makes me feel so good. So
4: thank you, man.
3: Cheers and uh we'll see you next week.
4: All right, thank you guys. Appreciate it.
1: Hey score listeners, we're so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herman Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like.
3: And remember, as an exclusive to SCORE listeners, yes, you SCORE listeners are special. And you're so special that Spitfire Audio is offering 20% off your first order. That's good for over 50 of their libraries.
1: Yeah, just go to SpitfireAudio.com, enter the promo code SCORE2020 so they know we sent you. Now we're going to play you a little clip from the Bernard Herrmann Composer Toolkit. Here's some of the different sounds they offer in that package, check it out. Again, just go to SpitfireAudio.com. Use the promo code SCORE2020 and save 20% off your first order with Spitfire products. We will see you next week. Where, Robert? On your radio dial or, more
3: appropriately, on SCORE, the
1: (laughs) podcast. (laughs) I'm leaving that. That's great.